Well, welcome. I'm Ryan. I'm the pastor here. And uh, you might think someone's punishing me by, you know, last week we did lust and this week divorce. But I actually picked this sermon series. So don't, uh, don't worry. It's no one but myself, I guess, punishing, punishing me. Um, today, Jesus is addressing a specific issue that is happening during that time with a specific people, and so we're going to go through all that so you'll understand it. It's, it's easy for us to hear of words like this and then directly just apply them to like some situation that we're in or someone else is in in our day. We need to first really understand the context that it comes in. So we're going to do that, and hopefully this will be, this will be a, a good thing and no one will leave in the middle of it or throw things or anything like that. Here's a sermon summary. Sermon summary is this, the law condemns divorce as adultery. Jesus is the faithful husband who never abandons his adulterous wife. The law condemns divorce as adultery. Jesus is the faithful husband who never abandons his adulterous wife. I want to start with some words by one of my favorite commentaries named John Stott. He's a pastor, was a pastor, and a commentator, and a theologian, and all those really lofty things. Now he's with Jesus doing quite well. And this is, this is what he says as he approaches this text. I confess to a basic reluctance to attempt an exposition of these verses. This is partly because divorce is a controversial and complex subject, but even more because it is a subject which touches people's emotions at a deep level. There is almost no unhappiness so poignant as the unhappiness of an unhappy marriage and almost no tragedy so great as the degeneration of what God meant for love and fulfillment into a non-relationship of bitterness, discord, and despair. Although I believe what God wants in most cases is not divorce, I hope I shall write with sensitivity, for I know the pain of which many suffer, and I have no wish to add to their distress. Yet, because I am convinced that the teaching of Jesus on this subject and every other subject is good, intrinsically good, good for individuals, good for society, that I take my courage in both hands and write on. That's the way I feel. He said it better than I could have as we approach this this text and this subject. Often when you talk about divorce in church, you get the feeling that many of you are feeling right now. Guilt, right? I know some of us, in our, some in our congregation have been divorced, and you're feeling, oh great, I'm going to be guilt-ridden after this one. That's not the intent. And others maybe who are in a marriage that's not going so well and are considering divorce, more guilt upon them, right? And then those who aren't married yet, we're just going to try to scare the heck out of you, you know, before you enter into marriage, That's not what we're doing here today. Um, I come from a divorced family. My parents are divorced. So you might look at me and say, okay, he needs a little counseling, but he turned out okay. Um, So so this this subject is close to me as well, and it probably is to, to many of you. Well, here's the things we're gonna we're gonna look at. Well, let me say before that, if you are struggling in your marriage, if your marriage isn't going great at the moment, This is a community that wants to love you and walk with you through this time. Um, Not to judge you, not to say, I can't believe, I can't imagine. No, we want to walk with you and help you through this season. And um, I've sat with many couples, marriages who are struggling for a little season, 
or marriages who have been terrible for 30 plus years. And uh, this is a place where you can be real about it. Not, you don't have to hide it. You can just come and we can meet together and talk about it. Myself, Pete, uh, our shepherding elder, happy to do that as well. We're happy to, to help you through this time. Just don't hide. It's not helping anything. Let's, let's walk through it together. All right. Some reminders as we go into this section of text. You, you see, I'm trying to do the intro. If that lasts like 25 minutes, I'll be done and we won't even have to get into this. That's my hope. Um, remember, this is one sermon by Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount. One complete sermon that he gave at one time. And so we're kind of looking at it in chunks. And it's important to remember that it is one sermon so we don't get kind of lost within the individual topics and forget his overall purpose and and the direction that he's going. And remember we said that there are bookends to this section, which we kind of titled this section Jesus on the Law, where he is restoring proper understanding of the law, which has been misunderstood. And so it's sort of Jesus on the law. And in this section, there's, there's two things to remember. First is the, those bookend comments. Remember, we talked about those last, last week. The first one is in Matthew 5.20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So that's on the front end. And then on the back end, the other comment that goes along with that, Matthew 5.48, you, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So see, those two comments are the bookends to this section that we're in right now. The other thing that Jesus does is he provides us with a little introductory statement for this section in Matthew 5.19, where he describes what's happening and why he's giving this instruction. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. That's his intro statement. He's going to kind of break that down and go through these different subjects and tell how the scribes and Pharisees are relaxing the commands of God. So the way those kind of relate together, if you want to think about it, if you relax the commandments of God, what happens to those bookend statements that we read is they get changed quite a bit. And so what happens is they get changed from something like, um, your righteousness must exceed the scribes and Pharisees, and it gets changed to something like, your righteousness should be somewhere around the scribes and Pharisees, give or take a little bit, you know, if you relax the commandments. If you relax the commandments, that ending statement about you having to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect gets changed to kind of just do your best, do the best you can. Take a good crack at righteousness. And that's not what Jesus is intending, but that's what they've done. One other comment, then, that I think is helpful as we approach this section is the summary of the entire law by Jesus. I know many of us probably don't have all of the law memorized from the Old Testament, right? So Jesus, in his graciousness and kindness, gave us a summary of the law. Two statements he makes in Matthew 22 as someone asks, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? You know, like, boil it down for me. There's a lot. And Jesus says... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And then he says the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. So do you see he summarized all of the law with two statements. Love God and love your neighbor. 
Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, all of it. Love your neighbor as yourself. See how lofty those commands are. But it's rooted in love. And so you're meant to hear that and feel the weight of that and say, okay, I, I, I must have full and pure love for God and full and pure love for neighbor. That's what God is, is calling us to. That's what the law summarized is. All right, well, let's go ahead and get into this text, I guess. We didn't run out of time yet. So three things that I think are important for us to, to notice here and look at. First is we want to understand what the law of Moses actually taught. So when Jesus says, but, or when he says, you have heard it said, what is he talking about? We'll, we'll attack that first. Then we want to know what the scribes and Pharisees are actually teaching at the time that Jesus comes with this. And then lastly, we'll finish up with what Jesus taught and why it's extremely important. So you want to definitely stay awake for that one. So first, what the law of Moses taught about divorce. The, this is re- in reference to Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Okay, I'll, I'll just kind of summarize that for you. But the, the reason that was brought was that things were getting chaotic. And this legislation was brought in order to protect the women and the children. Because what was happening was that people were uh, just, men were just divorcing women and throwing them out on the street. And that was a problem because the punishment for adultery, for instance, was stoning. And so if they were just thrown out on the streets, they could be accused of stoning, uh, accused of adultery and be stoned. And so some of this in Deuteronomy 24, this legislation comes so that it's not so destructive to women, so that it's not chaotic, so, so women and children aren't suffering at the hands of, of these men. So here's the three principles that Deuteronomy 24 lays out. Number one, it limited divorce to a very small reason. The word is only used like twice in the Old Testament. Um, so it's above my pay grade to really know exactly what it means. And uh, there's a lot of confusion about it. And we're not quite sure exactly what it means. It's, it's kind of translated uncleanliness. Um, and so, so there's some very slim reason it's limiting divorce to, that's the first thing it's doing, limiting divorce to this one area of quote-unquote uncleanliness, uncleanliness. And then the second thing is, is, is it requires a bill of divorcement. And so that woman couldn't just be kicked out on the street, accused of adultery, and stoned to death. Instead, you have to give them a bill of divorcement so you can state why they're divorced. It's given in the presence of others who can protect them and, and vie for them and say, no, 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 this is what happened. Okay, so it's restricting the chaos a bit. And the third thing it does is it speaks about remarrying and basically saying you can't if you divorce a woman, give her a bill of a divorcement, and then she goes and marries someone else, she's divorced again, you can't come back and remarry this woman that you had originally married. What's the reason for that? I, I think it's probably just like, this is a big deal, this divorce deal. So don't just do it haphazardly. You know, don't just, just have a bad day or, or not like her that day or she didn't wear her makeup that day or whatever. I mean, you just chuck her out on the street. You won't be able to remarry her again. And so it's that kind of like this uh, grass is always greener. You might find out that it's not quite the case as you divorce one woman and then 
remarry another one, you might think, you know, that first one I had was, was all right. She was okay. It's permanent. Sorry. She's someone else's wife now. Uh, the prophet John Mayer said it like this in his, uh, he's not really a prophet, he's a, he's a pop singer. Um, sorry to have to tell you guys that. John, in his song, Never on the Day You Leave, he says this, it's never on the day you leave that you wonder what you still believe in and you can't remember why you said goodbye. You'll hear an old familiar sound and you'll hope it's her when you turn around, but never on the day you leave. That's kind of a summary of what's being said in Deuteronomy. You know, like, don't just have a feeling one day and think this is it and divorce this woman because later things will probably come back to you and um, it'll be too late. So those are the, the three things about the legislation that was brought in, in Deuteronomy 24. It's trying to bring order. It's trying to limit chaos and restrict evil. This is one of the the things that the law does in general. Let me give you an example. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Right? You've heard that. Now, what that doesn't mean is that, hey, if you punch uh, me and knock my tooth out, I have to punch you. I'm required to punch you and knock your tooth out. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You know, tooth for a tooth. That's it. That's not what it's saying. What it was trying to do was restrict chaos. In other words, I punch you, knock your tooth out. You can't then go burn down my house you know, and take it like to the next level. You see what I'm saying? It's trying to restrict it. No, no, no. All you're entitled to if someone knocks out your tooth is a tooth. You're not entitled to, you know, burning down their house, slashing their tire, something like this. You get the idea. So that's what it was for, is to restrict, restrict the chaos and restrict the evil. That's what's happening here in this teaching. Uh, That's what was happening in that Deuteronomy passage. Let's try to restrain the evil that's happening right now. That's the purpose. So that's what was taught in the Mosaic legislation. Now, what the scribes and Pharisees were teaching about divorce, what was happening when Jesus came on the scene? What exactly were they saying? Well, the Jews of Jesus' day had heard that it was said that if a man divorces his wife, he must give her a certificate of divorce, and they had kind of selective hearing. Have you ever been accused of that? Me neither. Let's move on. Um, they had kind of selective hearing about how they heard that. The point of that Deuteronomy passage was that you can't just kick a woman out with, for no reason or for any reason that you choose. And so, and then if she marries again you can't re- and gets divorced, you can't remarry again. Since we aren't really sure what this word uncleanliness means, we can't really comment too much on that, but we know it was probably a pretty rare thing. It wasn't just for any reason whatsoever. And it certainly wasn't commanding divorce. The people in Jesus' day start to take it as like a command. And it's not even really an open door to divorce. Again, it's trying to restrict the chaos and the craziness that's happening. And they took it as, oh, sweet, we can divorce now. Great, just as long as you give a piece of paper, you're good. That's not what Deuteronomy 24 was talking about. So there was a rabbinical school of Hillel that interpreted this word uncleanliness, or maybe indecency might be another way to look at it, 
in the widest manner possible. They said even if a man, uh, he could divorce his wife if she just like burnt his dinner for any reason. Now, I am so blessed at, at my house that, that that just never happens, you know, because when Kate brings dinner to the table, well, when Kate brings the bag of five guys to the table, it's always just perfectly cooked, you know? I told her I was going to say that, and she laughed. She thinks I'm funny still. Um, so let that be a lesson for you guys if you're not married yet. Marry a woman that thinks you're funny and will continue to think you're funny with your dumb jokes for a long time. That's an aside for free. So the teaching of that day was lax, is what I'm trying to say. It extended unclean to mean if a wife walks around with her hair down, if she talks to another man in the streets, if she mentions something that you don't like about your mother or father, um, speaking disrespectfully to your parents, all these kind of things that was all lumped under that word uncleanliness. And so it gave them the freedom to divorce. Another rabbi even further went further, saying that the phrase she it means the phrase she finds no favor in his eyes, meaning like once you're kind of like just don't think she's attractive anymore, kind of just don't feel like being with her anymore, you can just get rid of her and go get a younger model or something. You know, and that was not not the point of Deuteronomy 24, but during this time that Jesus comes. This is where it had come. Divorce for any reason whatsoever, as long as you have the piece of paper. Do you see how that is a bit of relaxing the law? Just a little. They have relaxed it about as much as you could possibly relax it. Incorporating any reason whatsoever. And so they, they kind of are, are, are defending themselves like this. So don't worry I divorced my wife, but don't worry, I filled out the paperwork. It's all legal. I got it right here. Don't worry. And they hide behind the law that condemns them with such confidence, not understanding what the law was there for in the first place. Do you see how this would infuriate Jesus? How it would make him quite angry? Why he would say things like this in Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of your cup, and plate, but the inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of your cup and plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Doesn't that apply here? You appear righteous to others. I have my form. I filled out my form. I'm so righteous. Yet, inwardly, 
you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. There's no kind of greater punch to the gut to people of the law than for Jesus to come along and say, you guys are full of lawlessness. Wow. That was the whole thing they constructed their whole life around. And now he says, you're full of rejection of the law. Can you imagine what that would get you if you said things like that to those people? So they're holding to this kind of uh, this, this agreement on paper, meanwhile having no understanding of the direction of the law, which he summarized, remember, love God and love people. So that they have no, they're, they're not thinking a bit about love your neighbor as yourself when they're going through this, I have a piece of paper, so therefore I can divorce. No thought to that. That's the law's ultimate direction, and that's what this, uh, even back in Deuteronomy, that's what that is leading to, love your neighbor as yourself, they're totally missing it. They don't think about it for a minute. Have you ever heard the statement, it's not what you said, it's the way you said it? Have you ever gotten that statement from, from someone? I had it just a couple weeks ago. Kate was, was talking about um, how she was sad to leave her job and the people that she works with there. She's developed great relationships there and loves the people and um, so in my head, I started with all the, well, but this is going to take place, and well, but there'll be friends in, in Chicago, blah, 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 and all that stuff. But then I was smart enough, at least, after 15 years of marriage, to be like, don't, that's probably not the time for this, the, the, you know, bringing the, the truth. It's just, don't say that. Uh, so I didn't say that, and so I kind of fumbled around. It was just like, sorry, babe, and then just turned around and walked away. And she was like, later, she said, you know, that was really cold, what you said sorry, and then just walked away, and I was like, ah, and that was it. She was like, it wasn't what you said, because if I would have said, babe, I am so sorry. I know that's tough. That's a really tough thing, you know? That would have been great, but that's not, I, it, was, it was kind of the way I said it, right? It was the heart behind it that she was concerned with. It's the same way with the law. If you have kids, you know these apologies that kids give that are exactly the same, you know? Apologize to your brother and sister. I don't know why they don't open their mouth when they apologize. I'm really sorry for what I did. It's like, I didn't know I had to give this instruction. When you talk, open your mouth. That's step one, you know? Uh, It's the same thing. Their heart's not behind it at all, is it? They're just saying the words. They're just going through the motions. That's that's kind of what the law, what Jesus is saying about the law with these folks. You're going through the motions. It's not the motions. I'm talking about your, the direction of your heart behind the motions that I'm concerned with. That's what I'm getting at. That's what I'm trying to convict you of. That's what I'm trying to show you. And you're missing it altogether. It's not only what you did, it's the state of your heart that is the problem. It's not the, I, I don't care that you filled out paperwork. Your heart is still filled with hate, and it's void of love. That's what I'm getting at here, Jesus says. It was never about paperwork. It should have brought condemnation and conviction, and yet it completely is missed on them. So that's what the scribes and the Pharisees were kind of teaching with regard to divorce. Now let's talk about what our Lord Jesus is teaching about divorce. I want to read verse 32 without the exception clause. 
in it, so you can kind of feel the weight of it that I think Jesus was, was coming with. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So when you take out that exception clause, I think it has, has the weight that we ought to hear. I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Do you hear the rigidity there? Do you hear kind of the law-like statement of that? There is no, yeah, but. There is no, um, this case, that case. It's just straight, here's the requirement, period. Very, very rigid. D.A. Carson, another uh, writer and theologian, says this. Jesus is saying, anyone who divorces his wife is at fault because he is causing her to commit adultery if she marries someone else since the first link is not really broken. It follows, therefore, that a man who marries a wife is likewise, a, a di- marries a divorcee is likewise committing adultery. Before God, he is in fact marrying another man's wife. That's his summary of what Jesus is saying here. So I want you to think about divorce in the face of the summary of the law from Jesus, love your neighbor as yourself. And think about what's happening and the, and the people he's speaking to here. He's speaking to people here who are just getting rid of wives and getting new wives like that for any and every reason. And then hear that command with that background understood. And think about love your neighbor as yourself. That really restrains things, doesn't it? That would have the scribes and Pharisees second-guessing why exactly they were doing what they were doing because maybe it would pop in their head, hey, if I was in this person's shoes, what would I want? How would I want to be treated if I was the wife? That might all of a sudden pop in their head because that comes from love your neighbor as yourself. Put yourself in their shoes and tell me how you would like to receive what you would like to receive from your spouse. It changes how we see divorce and the desire to divorce. Jesus says, I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I think he's really attacking them, the scribes and Pharisees, by really attacking their innocence, right? So they're saying, I gave the, bill, I gave the form, I filled out the form, I returned it in the right amount of time, I'm good to go. And they're claiming innocence, and he is saying to them, attacking their innocence, and say, you made her commit adultery. You did it. But I'm, I'm clear. I filled out the form. He's saying, you're the one who made her commit adultery. He's attacking their claims for innocence and hiding behind this documentation. He's saying, you're responsible for their adultery. And adulterers would be stoned. And so that was a, something you wouldn't probably want around your own neck, on your shoulders. You're guilty of adultery if you divorce. You're guilty of adultery if you marry a divorced woman. Jesus is saying to these men who are just doing it for any and every reason. Now, what about that exception clause that Jesus gives? Verse 32, where he says, except on the ground of sexual immorality. If you divorce, make the woman, uh, you commit adultery, 
except on the ground of sexual immorality. Why would he say that? Well, it makes sense that he would make that concession or that exception because basically he's saying you don't make your spouse an adulterer if they've kind of already taken care of that themselves. You see what I'm saying? You don't make them commit adultery if they're already involved in adultery. They've already declared that upon themselves. So he's not making a statement about when you can divorce and when you cannot divorce. He's just making a statement about whether or not you make your spouse an adulterer and whether you are an adulterer. And if divorce is adultery, he's saying divorce is adultery in every instance. Somebody's saying, what if they've already committed adultery? He's like, well, of course not then because they've already become an adulterer. So divorce doesn't make them an adulterer. You see what I'm saying? He's just commenting on the question of, does divorce make an adulterer? Is it adultery? He's not saying, oh, but don't worry about this one case, or commanding, don't view it like the scribes and Pharisees, where it's like commanding divorce in this case, right? Well, if there's sexual infidelity, if there's something like that, if there's an affair, then, then you're commanded divorce. He's never saying that. It's always adultery, he's saying, unless it's preceded by adultery. I want you to remember two things as those kind of heavy words sit upon us. Who is Jesus talking to? He is talking to people, again, who are treating marriage like it's no big deal. The covenant is no big deal. Divorce is no big deal. Um, What happens to the other person after the divorce is no big deal. None of those matter. This is who he's bringing this command to. And secondly, what is Jesus doing here? He is correcting a wrong understanding of the law. He's correcting a relaxing of the law. He doesn't start his ministry by saying, I've got some topics I'd like to discuss with you guys. Here's how you can be better in these topics. We've said that throughout this series, haven't we? So it's not like he comes and says, I'm going to address some hot topics. Um, You guys shouldn't lust as much. You guys should be less angry. That's not what he's doing. He's correcting a misunderstanding of the law, and these subjects are kind of illuminating his teaching. Same here with divorce and remarriage. He's not coming and giving a, 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 a like divorce class and a remarriage class and saying, let me tell you when it's okay and not okay. He's not even addressing that at all. He's just reestablishing what the law commands. Marriage as a lifelong covenant, period. That's all he's discussing right there. Now, later, Paul might discuss some other things about when is okay and when is not okay. Those things might come later, but here, Jesus is just restoring the law. Again, the scribes and Pharisees coming and saying, we didn't commit adultery, though, because we have a certificate. But Jesus is saying, no, all divorce makes an adulterer, certificate or not, except when adultery has already occurred. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous preacher, he puts it very well. He says this, our, Lord, our Lord's purpose was to correct the perversion, the false interpretation of the law, which was being taught to the people by the Pharisees and scribes. He is therefore honoring the law of Moses and displaying it in its great fullness and glory. That, of course, is precisely what he does with regard to the question of divorce. He is especially concerned to expose the false teaching of the Pharisees and scribes with regard to this important matter. So, I guess 
we're just saying, don't try to wring out from this text things that aren't in the text. And so many of you were like, I'm excited to see what you do with the divorce text. You know, like I was going to give all these reasons. I can't because that's not what Jesus is doing here. He's restoring and correcting a misinterpretation, a misunderstanding of the law. That's what he's doing. So I try to go with Jesus and try to say what he says. He's not coming for some divorce seminar answering all of our questions about every instance, every time. He's not speaking maybe even to your instance. Who knows? Here's what Jesus is saying to them. You have been hearing, it's fine to divorce, just make sure you give a certificate. I am saying, the law forbids all divorce because all divorce is adultery and all remarriage is is adultery. That's the summary of what Jesus is trying to do. The instruction, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, was never a command to divorce. It was never opening the door so that you can divorce for more reasons. That's not what it was at all. Now, let's talk about why this is such a big deal. Why would Jesus, as he begins his ministry, why would he address this topic? It's very interesting, isn't it? Here's why I think he would. It's because from the beginning, the marriage covenant is to be an image of the greater covenant, God's covenant with his people. The marriage covenant is meant to be an image of the greater covenant, God's covenant with his people. So it makes sense why God would, Jesus would come speaking about marriage. Marriage is the language God uses when he talks about us being united to him in salvation by faith. Listen to Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way, husbands love their, should love their wives as their own bodies. You hear that? The law right there. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. Now, here it is. This is the kicker. Listen. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so we're saying, I, I thought you were talking about marriages here on earth. And he's like, I'm talking about Jesus and the church. And marriage is a picture of that, yes. But all these descriptions that I just gave of the faithful husband to the wife, I'm talking about Jesus and the way he loves his bride. I'm telling you about the gospel I'm saying marriage was invented by God to point us to the greater covenant of marriage, of him with his people. So our marriages here are little signposts, you know? They're little, little signs that say um, the gospel of God, God who, who loves his wife despite her inconsistencies, despite um, the changes, despite her 
uh, sometimes rebellion, despite her adultery. Jesus is the faithful husband who loves his bride. And so our marriages are parables of that story. Makes sense why Jesus would come and say, the covenant, the law says, the covenant is secure. Aren't you glad that that is the case? Aren't we glad that the case is God, as the law comes and says, basically, here's who I am in my righteousness, aren't you glad that it says marriage is forever? Because if it doesn't, we're all in big trouble. Because it depends upon our actions, and it depends how faithful we are, and that sort of thing. But he comes, and he says, let me describe to you who I am in the law, my righteousness, and my requirement, and this is who I am. I'm the husband who doesn't, doesn't walk away when things get tough. I'm the husband who doesn't walk away when you're not beautiful. I'm not scanning around looking for uncleanliness among you so I can give you a bill of divorcement and kick you out. I'm the husband who provides the righteousness to you and loves you to the end. I'm the husband who says, through sickness and in health, richer for poor, through unfaithfulness and faithfulness, I love you to the end. That's what Jesus says, and he means it. Genesis chapter 2, when it describes marriage, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. You that same type of language in Ephesians 5? United, that, that, that union language? It's the same idea. Hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Very similar to the description in Ephesians chapter 5 about Christ and the church. Now I want you to hear the, the language of Revelation 21. This is at the end. What a glorious day this will be. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from the heaven of God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. In other words, they've become one flesh. They've been united. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That is the end of history. The beautiful union and marriage of God's people to him. And the faithful husband, Jesus, we will be so thankful for his faithfulness to us. His covenant is sure. We can rest upon that covenant. A faithful God who no matter how unfaithful his wife is, he provides faithfulness for her and clings to her as if she were perfect. All glory and praise to him. Let's pray. God, I'm quite cognizant right now of folks here who need your ministry, who need your help, who may be um, feeling sadness or conviction or confusion upon their hearts right now. And um, if I said anything to add to that, Lord, may that please just not stick with them and pass over them. 
um, whatever is true and whatever you meant through this text, I pray that comes through to us. And um, Lord, no matter where we are today and how many marriages we've had, I pray that we find great relief in the fact that you have loved us and you'll love us till the end. You'll never divorce us. You'll never kick us out because you're a faithful God who is keeping up both sides of the covenant yourself. We thank you and and allow us to enjoy that marriage with you together as a community. Pray also for those marriages here today that are struggling. Lord, would you allow us to help them and love them and support them and just be present with them in the midst of hard times. We love you. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.